the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back as we head into Hour 3. The man by whom you could set your watch is also the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. He is also representing Arizona's 5th Congressional District. He is also one of my favorite public servants. He is Andy Biggs. Hello, Andy Biggs. Hey, how you doing, Chad? I'm fine. You have the keenest sense of time. You and Dagny, my dog. Oh, you guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, five a.m. breakfast, and then you call right at the perfect moment on a perfectly complicated issue that my listeners have been rightly up in arms about. That I wanted to get your take on. You're in the House of Representatives. Talk to us about this HR one, um, this this election reform legislation that has us so nervous. We're right to be nervous, aren't we? Yeah, you should be nervous. Um, uh, we we just uh, debated the rule. Um, that, uh, like like so many things, they're not going to let us uh, the the Republicans offer any amendments um, at all. But what this does, think of it this way. And I I wrote a piece and I said they really are codifying cheating. Right. And the and the reason that they're doing it is they're saying there's not going to be any voter identification required at any time um and they're going to allow a hundred percent mail-in ballots now think about the hundred percent mail-in ballots that's different than what we do in arizona we do you have to sign up and get on the roll mail-in ballot program is anybody uh living in your state's going to get a ballot but here's the way it works they're going to look at all kinds of uh databases that the government keeps and then they're going to throw these out there and uh, nobody's culling those databases. Nobody's cleaning up those databases. So you're going to have a lot of fraudulent, uh, or potentially fraudulent or duplicative ballots hanging out there. And then they're going to also basically allow ballot harvesting is where a paid worker can go out and come in with a stack of ballots um, and, and just turn them in. And uh, so those are problems. And you, can't, and you can't clean up the voter rolls. And, uh, I mean, it just goes on. Uh, you get in. The feds are going to pay for the politicians' campaigns with your tax dollars. I mean, you you begin to see what I'm talking about. Yeah, here. no, I, I you begin to see you begin to see what you said in your op-ed uh, over at Fox News. They hope to make America a one-party nation, um, squelching opposition and dissent, and making elections all but irrelevant. You know, someone tweeted. I don't know. Maybe it was might have been you. It might have been a friend of yours or mine said if Republicans aren't focused on election integrity as issues 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 right now, they're off message. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so I know I mean, I know what the polling data says because I've seen the polling data that I've run. I've seen polling data that the nationals have run. I've seen another polling data today. And, and election integrity – is, is the number two issue for Republicans in Arizona and across the country. It's number two. Um, number one is immigration. But number two, you, you, it, they, they go hand in glove. I mean, when you think about this, 
um, because if you have a an election that uh, system that nobody trusts, and by the way, here's a beautiful way to think about this: the Democrats said that the Republicans stole the 2016 election when Donald Trump was elected. They right. said, "Oh, the Russians did everything." And all after all the evidence came in, no, that wasn't true. And so they didn't trust elections up till September or so of this year. About 80 percent said uh, Democrats said they didn't trust elections. Conversely, about 80 percent, uh, actually less than that, but about half of Republicans said they trusted um, elections, except for it was dropping. And then post-election, 90 percent of Democrats say they trust it and 90 percent of Republicans say they don't trust it. When you whipsaw back and forth, you've got an institutional uh problem because Americans don't trust that institution. If your guy wins, you trust it. If you don't, you don't trust it. So if you want to, the most fundamental institution in the country is voting. If you want to protect that institution, you better do a bunch of things to make sure that you have protected that. So everybody, win, lose, or draw, says, my guy lost, I hate it but it was fair right. or my guy won. Sure. It, uh, I love it, but it was fair. Sure. We're, we're not there. We are not there. And this bill is, will basically prevent that from happening for a generation. Andy, um, I'll come back to the federal in a moment and what can be done there at the house and Senate levels, but can state legislatures and you're, you're formerly a, a member of the state legis- leader of the state legislature here. Can state legislatures do things to put themselves, the states, between them and, and if H.R. 1 passes or to prevent problems that could come out of H.R. 1? Can certain election reforms be done at the state level that, in other words, would thwart or um, inoculate us against H.R. 1's uh, depredations? Yeah, uh, you, you, we can. But if H.R. 1 passes, then the elections are nationalized. Okay. But in the meantime, the state can do all kinds of things, and they should do all kinds of things. For it. Number one is you want to you want to um, basically clearer on the mail-in ballots. You want to be clearer on the ballot harvest to make sure those don't happen. You want to make sure that, uh, you know, quite frankly, you want to get as much in-person balloting and voting as possible rather than um, uh, less verifiable um, voting, uh, mail-in voting. You want to make sure that you protect and preserve the 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 uh, voter identification laws that we have, we have in Arizona. You want to make sure that you can have independent forensic audits, and by that I mean truly independent and truly forensic. Those odd types of audits are important. You want to, and we need the state attorney general in Arizona, and frankly, all the states' attorneys general, they're going to have to litigate. If H.R. 1 were to become law, they would have to litigate a lot of this. So the state legislature should be doing everything they can to make sure they've protected the integrity of the state elections and local elections. And then the AG is going to have to go in and defend what they've done and fight about uh, the constitutionality or unconstitutionality, quite frankly, of H.R. 1. That's that's where we need um, from that for perspective. On the other side, we're counting on the Senate to basically um, fight uh, fight that out. Yeah, so let, let's turn back there because I love what yeah. you've said about the states, and I've been with you. You know, I want we, we Republicans have something like over sixty percent of the state legislatures. You just gave them their roadmap. Uh, do do yeah. what Andy just said, but but in in the interim, we also have the Senate. So, do you think the Senate goes along with this uh, lock, stock, and barrel? Is there no stopping it, or what do you think? 
No, I don't think that they see because right now they got to get sixty votes for this to pass in the Senate. I don't think they get there. I, I think that I think that even some Democrats are kind of iffy on it because uh, it's it's a scary unconstitutional thing. But, but let's say they get all the Democrats, um, uh, they're not going to get to sixty. Okay. So we hope we hope that's the way it is. We think that's the way it is. I've talked to senators who indicate that they think that's the way it is. But um, and I'll tell you one good. Do we have to worry about any Republicans? You think we're okay on that side? I think I think you you're going to have you might lose a couple. I don't think I don't think you will. Okay. But the good news is you actually have Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Who's going to be whipping? And right. he hates H. Right, right, right. There's good Mitch and bad Mitch. This is good Mitch. Yes. Yeah. Right. This is good. Right. Mitch. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. You were going to tell me a story. You were saying. No, no. I was just going to say that that he's the guy. Oh, okay. He, good. Uh, Mitch is Mitch is all against H. R. One. He's on our side this time. So that's. Good. <laughs> Funny thing when Republicans have to say the Republican leader's on our side this time. <laughs> but, uh, well, I, I mean, you, he is. Yeah. No. I know. I give you. I, I show you the times. <laughs> I show you the times we live in. Um, Andy, we have about a minute left. Is police reform going to be on the agenda at all, or is it mostly yeah. mostly going to fall uh, basically to the wayside after the George Floyd uh, trial? Uh, no, it's it's on. We I, we I just debated it for hours today, um, and it will come up for a vote Thursday, I believe, uh, in the House, and okay. it'll go to the Senate. And um, I don't think they're going to get the 60 votes in the Senate. Um, if they do, it's going to look very different. It's going to look more like Tim Scott's bill from last year, which, um, you know, there was some good things in it, some stuff I didn't like in it. But the, it, it'll, if, it comes, if it comes out of the Senate at all, it will be very different than the, the horrible, horrible bill that they have in the, in the House right now. We've got to give you the majority back in two years, don't we? Yes, we need it back badly. Yeah. Badly. Andy, God bless you for all you do. God speed to you, Thank too. You, Thank sir. you, sir. Nice hearing Thanks. from you. We'll talk to you soon. Good talking to you. God bless you. Okay, you, you bet. 602-508-0960, your show here on out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, don't do this too often, although lately a little more than usual, uh, maybe because of the trenchancy of these lessons. But um, Dennis Prager uh, put out a video with Dinesh D'Souza uh, just today, and I have to air it in full. It's a few minutes, but it's Dinesh D'Souza talking about the new socialism, which is something I've been talking about uh, for a while now, too. And we'll get into it a little bit, but it's not the old socialism or at least not the old Marxism based merely on class struggle. What the neo-socialists have done is they have adopted and replaced class struggle for race struggle. Um, And of course, this is why any abandonment of human nature is the abandonment of the ground of all morality, as Harry Jaffa has taught. And um, it's... When you get to these isms, it's everything but basically the idea that a human is a human. Uh, let, let, let D'Souza say his piece here. There's a new socialism in town. 
I call it identity socialism. The old socialism the kind Karl Marx dreamed up was all about the working class, the sort of blue-collar worker who, ironically, voted for President Trump. But today's socialists couldn't care less about the guy in the hard hat. He had his chance at revolution and blew it. Today's socialist is all about race, gender, and transgender rights. Class is an afterthought. To understand this is to understand the left's takeover of the college campus and all the ills that takeover has spawned. From Me Too to Black Lives Matter to girls competing against biological boys. But campus culture has now metastasized into the culture of the whole society. As liberal writer Andrew Sullivan has put it, we all live on campus now. Identity socialism is first and foremost about division. Not just class division, but now race division. Gender division, transgender division. Blacks and Latinos are in. Whites are out. Women are in. Men are out. Gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, transgenders are in. Heterosexuals are out. Illegals are in. Native-born citizens are out. One may think this is all part of the politics of inclusion, but to think that is to get only half the picture. The point for the left is not merely to include, but also to exclude. So where did this identity socialism come from? Meet Herbert Marcuse. Born in Berlin in 1898, Marcuse fled Germany at the dawn of the Nazi era. After stints at Columbia, Harvard, and Brandeis, Marcuse moved to California, where he joined the University of California at San Diego in 1965. You'd think that living in a paradise like Southern California, with all the comforts and privileges of academic life, might have softened Marcuse's Marx-like hatred of capitalism. But it was not to be. If anything, the more he prospered, the more he wanted to bring the system down. He had a problem, however, a big one. Socialism didn't work in America. Life was too good. The working class in the U.S. didn't aspire to overthrow the existing order. They aspired to own a home. How could you foment revolution without revolutionaries? Classic Marxism had no answer for this. But almost a 100 years after Marx, Marcuse did. The answer was college students. They would be the recruits for what he termed the great refusal, the repudiation and overthrow of free market capitalism. Conditions were perfect. The students of the 60s were already living in what was in effect a socialist commune, a university campus. Rather than being grateful to their parents for providing them with this opportunity to learn and study, they were restless and bored. Most importantly, they were looking for meaning, a form of self-fulfillment that went beyond material gratification. Of course, as with all successful social movements, timing was critical. Here, Marcuse was very fortunate. The 60s was the decade of the Vietnam War. Students faced the prospect of being drafted. Thus, they had selfish reasons to oppose the conflict. Marcuse and his acolytes turned this selfishness into righteousness by teaching the students that they weren't draft dodgers. They were noble resistors who were part of a global struggle for social justice. Marcuse portrayed Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong as a kind of third world proletariat, fighting to free themselves from American imperialism. This represented a transposition of Marxist categories. The new working class were the Vietnamese freedom fighters. The evil capitalists were American soldiers serving on behalf of the American government. Marcuse found, in addition to the students' other groups ripe for the taking, the first was the Black Power Movement, which was a militant adjunct to the civil rights movement. 
The beauty of this group, from Marcuse's point of view, was that unlike white students, its members wouldn't have to be instructed in the art of grievance. Blacks had grievances that dated back centuries. Through another Marxist transposition, blacks would become the working class, whites the capitalist class. Race in this analysis took the place of class. Another emerging source of disgruntlement was the feminists. Marcuse recognized they too could be taught to see themselves as an oppressed class. This, of course, would require a further Marxist transposition. Women would now be viewed as the working class and men the capitalist class. The class category would now be shifted to gender. Marcuse recognized that educating and mobilizing all these groups, the bored students, the aggrieved blacks, and the angry feminists would take time. But he wasn't in a hurry. Soon enough, the radical students would be the radical professors, teaching identity socialism to a fresh crop of impressionable recruits. Over time, Marcuse believed the university could produce a new type of culture, and that culture would then spill into the larger society to infect primary education, the news media, and entertainment. Even big business, the hated capitalist class itself, would succumb. He was right. Identity socialism has arrived. I'm Dinesh D'Souza for Prager University. And that's what the what's important to understand about the modern socialists, the modern communists, <clears throat> that they have replaced race with class and now gender as well, all of which is, as I said before, the key abandonment of human nature, which is the key abandonment of the grounding of all morality. You can't have a country founded, a moral country founded on anything other than a precept that all men are created equal, especially if you understand that inequality of human beings is an unnatural condition. This is why we talk about the natural law, natural right founding, or natural law, natural right philosophy of the founding, all of which by use of race and by the exquisite use of race in academia and business as is happening in this country is going to take us into a direction hitherto unknown. I don't know of a country that has been this free before that has gone into such a regime-level threat as the socialism that Dinesh D'Souza describes. The key point about it, though, the key point about it is, though, you look anywhere you want, anywhere you want, for a socialism that worked, and you will not find it. You will find the God that failed. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm not sure how many of you watched uh, Donald Trump speaking at CPAC uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, I heard a lot of audio of it. I saw the speech, uh, and um, it was classic Trump. I love the fact that he is not uh, trimming his sails. And I suppose if there was one big headline, it's that uh, he's not planning to start a third party. Uh, do note the present tense of that. He is not now planning to start a third party. Paul Mirangoff, uh, uh proffered an interesting take, if, which is to say if Donald Trump were to run in the presidential primaries and not win, might he then start a third party? And uh, who knows? I mean, you know, this is this is now several levels of um, several levels of analysis that I'm sure not even Donald Trump has thought about, to be honest with you. But it was good that he pointed out not only um, several, also in his speech, not only 
uh, several of the people that uh, would be good to primary. I'm with him on that. If you're, if you know, if if you're not helping us get to the right destination, get off the boat. Really, I I, I really do agree with him on that. And uh, and that was good. And he he was also good by mentioning a lot of the great new leadership that we do have, um, new bastions of the Republican Party that I've been talking about when I say, or many of us have been talking about when we say we've never been in in really better shape when it comes to the bench and the talent. So I, you know, I th- I thought the speech was just just great in all those respects. And an interesting call from a friend last night who was talking to me a little bit about, you know, the problems we have with social media, big tech, and censorship. And he said, you know, how do, how do you start your conversations about it? I said, well, we've, we've done a few different ways, but just try this on for size because it's one of these unaddressed, unspoken about things that when you just take a beat and step back is actually one of the most incredible things to think about. And it's this, the former president of the United States does not have a social media account and not because of his wish. The former president of the United States does not have a social media presence and not because of his volition. The former president of the United States is unable to use the most fundamental and basic means of political communication in this country because big tech social media doesn't like what he has to say. Think about that. Now, I know it's become a quaint thing for people to say, well, if they can do it to the president, they can do it to anyone. The problem is, and Bill Maher was pointing this out in the audio we played earlier, they are doing it to anyone. They are doing it to everyone. That's problem one. And problem two is what do you say and do about a country that just goes along with this and accepts it? I was making the point earlier that the um, that the uh, formation of a republican form of government or a democracy has a few baselines, a few conditions that without which you can't call yourself a democracy or a republican form of government. Uh, that certainly has to be freedom of conscience and everything that involves, which includes freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of religion. The religion thing they're going after through litigation and gubernatorial edict, not here blessedly, but in other states. The speech thing, ironically enough, is being handled not by the government, so it's not precisely a First Amendment issue. It's bigger than the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects free speech. Private enterprise is going after free speech. They're going after the genus, whereas the First Amendment is merely the species. And it turns out what the private corporations in this country can do is much greater to you than what the government can do, good and bad. 
Think about that. They are engaging in more censorship than the founders envisioned in creating a First Amendment that protected you against merely the government. Think about the fact that a handful of private companies, a handful of private country companies control political speech in this country. Think about that and then go and find a 1970s leftist professor like Noam Chomsky and ask him what he would have ever thought of such a thing. Portions of this show are brought to you by my favorite product, Balance of Nature. Why is it my favorite product? Because it's so easy to take, it's so commonsensical, and it really does work. In almost a year and a quarter of taking it, I have not gotten anywhere close to a cold, much less the flu, just like that guy on TV says who takes it. And I usually get them several times a year, colds anyway. All natural, vine, ripened fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness, reduced into vegetarian capsules using their unique cold press process, preserving the tens of thousands of vital nutrients in their fruits and veggies. Everything from garlic and carrots and kale to apples and blueberries and pineapple and mango and oranges. Good, potent, healthy stuff to keep you healthy to keep your energy high and to boost your immunity. Friends tell me when they've had too late of a night, take it first thing in the morning. It's a pretty darn good cure. Balance of Nature has a great offer right now. Free shipping, 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. All you have to do is give them a call at 800-246-8751. Or visit them at balanceofnature.com and make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We talk about supporting our sponsors. That's why I say Balance of Nature is both good and good for you. They are one of the shows and station sponsors, and that is a good for our public political health. It's good for you, self-evidently, because you get tens of thousands of vital nutrients in a single daily dose of Balance of Nature. Go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Certain conversations you don't wish you have to have or had to have, and yet you have to have them. If there is going to be any semblance of sanity and no great big lies that dominate either our politics or our history. We're about to engage in one starting next week with the jury selection in the death of George Floyd. That's all I have to say for you to understand what I meant when I say you wish you didn't have to have certain conversations. You think about what that match did to the tinderbox of race relations in this country. Scott Johnson writes, those of us who took up law and or journalism may have been inspired by Atticus Finch or John Adams or even Woodward and Bernstein, but when the time came to face down the mob and talk back to the authorities, the lawyers and the press took their places in the crowd. Take the Minneapolis Star Tribune, for example. As the lynch mob formed and the city burned, the cat had their tongue. Star Tribune commentary editor D.J. Tice wrote that there would be a hard time finding a fair trial for Derek Chauvin, one of the police officers. Um, implicated in the death of George Floyd. 
At the behest of the mob, Governor Waltz of Minnesota lifted responsibility for the prosecution from the office of the Hennepin County Attorney, which would be your district attorney, and assigned it to the Minnesota Attorney General, Keith Ellison. It's a pretty rare move to give it to a state attorney general. Ellison has named Assistant Attorney General Matthew Frank to lead the prosecution. Ellison's office employs more than 130 attorneys. Despite the huge staff of attorneys at his disposal, Ellison has called in reinforcements to assist them. You think you can't prosecute something that happened in front of your very eyes with 130 attorneys? You need more? That should tell you something. This past June, Ellison announced the appointment of four outside attorneys in private practice as special assistants on the case. The fourth outside attorney is the star of the group, former Obama administration acting solicitor General Neil Katyal, now in private practice in Washington, D.C. Curious about the arrangements for their appointment, I filed a Data Practices Act request, this is Scott Johnson writing, with Ellison's office seeking the relevant documents. Deputy Attorney General David Voigt produced a set of repetitive and partly redacted documents in response to my request. In his redacted memo naming the attorneys he wanted deputized, Ellison wrote that, quote, in terms of our trial team, I propose we include a team that brings us the best of all our strengths. I want to nail this down by Wednesday, June 17th. Naming the first three attorneys, Ellison rendered one of their names wrongly, and he named another one as a former federal prosecutor who wasn't. He had a lot on his mind, Scott writes. Kachel came later, the former Obama administration official, and of the four special assistants featured in Ellison's press release, only Kachel has been visible so far. All the outside attorneys in the case are serving pro bono. Typically, a case like this for Kachal would be $1,750 an hour. $1,750 an hour. Derek Chauvin, the police officer, is represented by a criminal defense attorney. So far as we are aware, he has no outside help, pro bono or otherwise. If you're looking for Atticus Finch in this case, Eric Nelson will have to be the one to serve it. Judge Cahill is a former assistant Hennepin County attorney and a former criminal defense attorney. The state wanted all four officers tried together. The case against the three officers for this tri- for the trial will be moved to the summer, and only Derek Chauvin will be tried first. Well, folks, um, the court and its environs are to be protected by officers and troops numbering in the thousands. I bet. Protesters promise to do their thing. The prospect of a fair trial in this atmosphere seems incredibly remote. And we remain one step removed from the territory of the Oxbow incident. Yeah, I think that's right. But we'll uh, keep in close touch with Scott and John throughout this trial as they're right there on the ground. One of the interesting, most interesting things one can read, however, is the um, 
documents filed in the George Floyd case from the medical examiner's findings. You can't just say alleged murder if you read any of these medical examiner's findings. Sit tight. Do you ever have a um, friend or an acquaintance who sends you a quote on email and you just cannot get it out of your head? Cannot. Well, I happen to have a very dear friend, Steve, who sent me one from Arthur Kessler from his classic book, uh, Darkness at Noon. If you haven't read Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, um, 1939, 1940, you definitely want to read it. And um, I'll give you the quote and I'll close the show with it. But before I do, let me give you a subsequent quote to think about from Hannah Arendt. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not – and I want you to think about this in the context of what Dinesh D'Souza said earlier about modern socialism. The ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the dedicated communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, true and false, no longer exists. Think about that. The quote my friend Steve sent me from Darkness at Noon, Arthur Kessler. Satan is thin, ascetic, and a fanatical devotee of logic. He reads Machiavelli, Ignatius of Loyola, Marx, and Hegel. He is cold and unmerciful to mankind out of a kind of mathematical mercifulness. He is damned always to do that which is most repugnant to him, to become a slaughterer in order to abolish slaughtering. To sacrifice lambs so that no more lambs may be slaughtered. To whip people with knouts so that they may learn not to let themselves be whipped. To strip himself of every scruple in the name of a higher scrupulousness. And to challenge the hatred of mankind because of his love for it. An abstract and geometric love, which is no love at all. Thank you for sending that to me, Steve. I leave it with you tonight to contemplate. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all and class dismissed.